You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. John chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 31 uh, through the end of the chapter. Uh, John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Yet You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from, with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right to say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not know Him. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. You know, we really needed to read this passage in its entirety to get a true sense of this public debate between Jesus and a group of Jews 
who had recently started to believe in him. This is what we know about this group of people. They were listening to him. They were following him. Jesus was gathering a, a crowd of people who were seeing the works he was doing and performing the, the miracles, and they liked what he had to say. And they, put, they believed in him. And now they're fighting with one another, and some debates can be really personal. They begin with substance. They begin with some information and things worthy to talk about, but they quickly at times can turn into name-calling and character-bashing, at the end of the summer and in throughout next year, you're going to have the privilege of witnessing some kind of debates like this. It will divide families. It will end friendships. It will boil your blood. I'm talking about the 2024 presidential elections. Let's do it. Let's go there. Let's talk about it. Are you excited? No. You know, in these debates, I mean, points are awarded to candidates with the best character attacks. Extra points for talking about candidates' mother and children. It's nothing new. It's been going on forever. When you run out of substance or feel yourself kind of down in the count, make it personal. Talk about them. 30 years ago, we saw maybe the clearest example of this kind of debate captured on film in the movie The Sandlot. There's this scene where these two rival boyhood teams, they come together on the turf, on the, football, on the baseball field, and they talk about the merits of their game and their skill, and they, they trash talk each other about how one team and player is better than the next. But before long, neither side can really claim victory in this debate as who was the better team. And so, of course, the star catcher Sensing he's at a disadvantage, he ends the argument with one insult and fires back, oh yeah, you play ball like a girl. And for a 10-year-old boy, that ends the debate right there. Now come up to the, football, the softball fields up in Marana, and you'll know that playing ball like a girl is actually a compliment. But for these boys, that was it. That was the lowest thing you could say. This is the tactic of this debate in this passage. Make it personal, name call, attack their character. It escalates quickly. You can sense the temperature rising. The Jews are furious with Jesus. Jesus even acknowledges in this debate two, three, four times that he acknowledges, you want to kill me right now. To what level of temperature and, and escalation does a debate need to get to for you to know for certain that there's this murderous intent with the people that you are fighting with? The Jews tell Jesus, you're crazy, you're demonic, you have a demon, you're a liar. And they possibly even attack the sexual integrity of his mother. We know who you are, Mary's kid, oh you married, never had sex, and had a baby. Okay, Jesus, we know who your mom is. Reputation gets around. It's low. It is an all-time low. But what are they debating about? Because that's what matters to us. That's what matters to us. This is why John tells the story. Because if we can get to the heart of this debate, we will be able to discover some very important insights about what it means to know God, to follow Jesus, and to even find assurance in our own relationship with him. And verse 31 gives us a clue as to what this debate is really about. You see, crowds are coming to Jesus. They're believing in him. They're agreeing with his message, and they're beginning to follow 
him. They're becoming one of his disciples. And he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is introducing important things to these new people as part of the visible church, new followers, new disciples. And he says it's one thing to profess faith and another thing to possess faith. Now let me say that again for you. It is one thing to, pos- to profess faith in Jesus and another thing to possess faith in Jesus. And this is where he begins to offend them. It is one thing to hear his teaching and say, I like what he has to say. He's a good teacher. I want to follow him and learn from him and hear more from him. It is one thing to feel that way and to agree with the things he says. And yet another thing, to have the word of God abide in you to take deep root in your life to the point where you surrender to it and it guides your very thoughts and dreams and fears and hopes. This is where Jesus begins to touch on some hot topic buttons in their heart. He is saying that true freedom, true spiritual life, true relationship with God, true salvation, true citizenship in the kingdom of God, even true identity as being called a child of God. It does not come from your status. It will not come from you following a system of morality. It will only come from depending upon the word of Jesus with all of your might, with all of your heart, with all of your mind. And the more Jesus talks about what it means to really be a disciple and to believe in him, the more people want to kill him. The more people want to kill Jesus, the more he becomes more clear on what it means to believe in him. And we'll see why throughout this passage. Three points that Jesus makes in his argument that we'll talk about today is that spiritual freedom is not found through our status. Spiritual freedom is not found through a system of morality, but spiritual freedom is only found through a savior. Let's look at the first one. The spiritual freedom is not found through our status. What what status are the Jews relying upon and standing upon for the benefits of spiritual freedom and identity? It's their status as Abraham's descendants. This bloodline, Abraham, uh, 2,000 years before the birth of Christ he lived. And long ago, here's this man, Abraham. He's 100 years old. He has a wife named Sarah. And God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, he says, you are going to be the father of a great nation. I'm going to make you great. And from you will come more descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And from your family, I will bless the whole world. And my promised Messiah, the one who will rescue the world will come through your family. What a great promise. One problem. Sarah couldn't have children and she was 90 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. And he makes that claim. He says, God, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. It can't happen. They couldn't have children. But God came to Abraham and said, I will make you into a great nation. 
and the merits of his promise, he said, he said, this is not going to be contingent upon you. It's not going to be contingent on your faithfulness. It will be contingent on my character, on my promise to you. And you know what Abraham did? It says, uh, for in hope against all hope, against all odds, Abraham believed in God's promise. He believed in faith and became the father of faith, the father of trusting, not on this system, not on this, this status, but he believed that God would do what he said he would do. He said, I will bless your descendants. They will be my people and I will be their God and we will dwell together forever and I will save them from their sins. God was faithful to his promise. Sarah became pregnant. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Isaac. And it's through this son Isaac that he would give birth to Jacob who became the father of 12 sons. The tribes of Israel it is through these men that come the whole entire Hebrew people and the Jewish nation, even the, the Hebrew and Jewish people today come from the fulfillment of this promise and now stand before Jesus, the biological descendants of God's promise saying, we have an inherited favor from God because Abraham is our father. We have an entitlement to receive the salvation and blessing that God promised to our bloodline. And Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. He doesn't dispute their physical heritage or their, their physical lineage. He says, you are Abraham's descendants. He affirms it. He says, you are physical descendants of Abraham, but spiritually you are slaves to sin. They failed to understand that there are more ways to be in bondage and enslaved in your life that go beyond the physical. There are different things that can enslave a person more than economic slavery or, or political slavery or physical slavery. It's the kind of argument that seems strange to us today, but it shouldn't be. You know, that there are people saying, like, I, I have favor from God because of this physical lineage that I've been born into. But we can make arguments like times, just like the Jews. When we believe even slightly that there is a certain kind of person, that there is a certain kind of personality or life experience that makes a person more suitable to be a Christian than others. We can do this all the time. What could that mean? You come from a long line of Christians. Your father was a leader in the church. Your mother taught Sunday school for 30 years. You were raised in the church. You learned the stories. You've memorized the passages. You have connected to the church and connected to God's words. You've been connected to God as long as you were, can remember. You were born a Christian. You're not a slave. The slaves are the ungodly people. The slaves are those that are outside of the church, the, the pagans, the irreligious, the worldly people that are raised in a home that doesn't know God or believe God, that they go to college and they swear off God entirely. They, they move to Portland. You know, these are the people that like need Jesus, right? Sorry, if you're from Portland, we're glad you're here. We love you. And God probably loves you too. Um, we don't, you know, it's like, what, these are the people that, that's this status, you know, like we weren't born in that. We were raised right. Why are you a Christian? Because I was raised right. This is just another way of saying what the Pharisees say. When they say to Jesus, what are you talking about? We've never been enslaved. We are a free people. 
born a free people. We're a free people now. We've inherited the favor of God by the right of our birth. They have forgotten a lot. Of course they've been enslaved. Do they forget Egypt? Do they forget Babylon, which wasn't much long ago before that? Do they even forget the present where they are in some ways even enslaved by Rome? The other people, these these Puritans, the the demon-possessed, the irreligious, the pagans, the one who worship many gods, these are the people that God needs to help, but God doesn't need to help me. And so Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he says, I'm telling you the truth, and that's why you want to kill me. Because you cannot handle the truth. It does not rest in you. You have no room in your heart to realize that you are just as in need of rescue as the worst person you've ever met. You're slave to your own wicked desires, your own wicked appetites. The Bible teaches us that we are not born spiritually neutral. We are not born with a spiritually neutral status. We are born with the power to think. We are born with the power to make choices. But the best way to describe our spiritual status before God is that of spiritual slavery. We are chained We are in bondage to our desires. And these desires, these impulses, these cravings that we have, they limit us and they keep us from loving God and living a life that God has called us to live. And the only way to be released from that bondage, that slavery, and brought into freedom is to understand our situation and the truth that Jesus is the solution. And this has been a great place for the Jewish people to hear this message and to acknowledge in their own hearts and say, okay, I see where you're going at. You're talking about a spiritual kind of slavery. And and, and, and this would have been a great time for the Jews to say, you're right. My heart is prone to wander. I need forgiveness from God. Please forgive us. But they don't. And the conflict gets worse and worse. They get angrier and angrier and the conflict escalates. The debate moves from the error of finding spiritual freedom through their status and birthright as the Jewish people to finding spiritual freedom through the moral and ethical now system. Freedom is not found there either. And Jesus moves into that system, which makes them even more angry. Because spiritual freedom is not found through a system of morality. This is the aggressive point that the Jews are making. Abraham's our father. Abraham is our father. And it's, not to, it's all to say, we're not bad people. Why are you calling us like pagans and those cut off from God? We are Abraham's children. We are good people. That's what they're saying. They're moving on from this mere biological association with Abraham and now advancing the argument, I believe. They're saying, in effect, okay, biology aside, by any measure of moral and ethical standards, we measure up enough to be considered faithful descendants of God. Compare us to any nation, compare us to any people, and you see that we are good people. How dare you? We are not pagans. We are not irreligious. And Jesus must be thinking, oh no, they're really going to hate what I'm about to say. And he says, let's talk about your morality. 
let's talk about your ethics. It says your morality, your choices that you make, resemble more like the devil than they do of Abraham. Your father's not Abraham. Your father's the devil. Three or four times he says this. And he describes, describes the work of the devil. And he says, the work of the devil is just works that come out of his own character. And you look a lot more like him than you do like God. Important insight here for morality. Something to realize because these Jews were the they were, by any stretch of any measure, of any standard, they were good people, the best. And there's something here to learn about morality. The first is this, that we can be wrong when we are bad. We know that. That's the obvious thing to see in this passage. I think we all know what it looks like to be wrong because you're bad. There's the obvious signs of sin. It's the obvious thing that sin looks like that we see in ourselves and we see in others. It's acts of wickedness. It's acts of evil. It's things like lies and murder and lust and gossip and disobedience that's plain to see. You know what sin looks like when you see it. You and I know what bad looks like when we see it. But there's a second way to be wrong that Jesus points on here, and it's much less obvious to pick up, that you can be wrong when you're trying to be good in order to find favor with God. There are two ways to sin. Sin in the bad that you do and also sin in the good that you do for the wrong reasons. If we are ever being good to impress God, if we are ever being good to impress others or even ourselves, it's always done for our own glory. And this is the point that Jesus makes. He says, I am not coming on my own glory. This isn't about my reputation. You're doing what you're doing for your own reputation. You're doing what you're doing for your own glory. And this is the fundamental characteristic of sin. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. And deep down in all of us, we have this desire just like the Jews. It is a desire to want to prove ourselves, to base our, our um, worth with God and with others and with self in what we do and how we are different from others. Religious people do this all the time. I follow these rules. I follow this system. I'm an ethical, moral, good person. Compare me with anyone and you will see that I'm good and I'm trying to do better. But non-religious people are like this as well. They try to base their identity on their performance. I'm a good citizen. I'm just a, I, I follow the golden rule. I do unto others as I would hope that they would do for me. And here's the problem with performance-based identity. It never works. It never works. You might fool other people into tricking them that you're good, but you will never fool God. You might even fool yourself from time to time and really convince yourself that you have arrived, but you'll never fool God. The question will always remain a burden on your heart. And here's the question. How good is good enough for God finally to be happy with your goodness? Can you ever get to the end of that answer? Can you ever feel satisfied that you have ever done good enough we can never change enough to impress God with our character. And as Christians, we spend a great deal of time repenting of the wrong that we do, but we should also repent of desiring to make ourselves right 
with God with the good that we do. We know what it's like to say, God, I'm sorry for the bad that I did. Please forgive me. But we need to say, God, I am sorry for thinking that the good that I have done is worth any merit for your favor and love and acceptance in my life. When we try to prove ourselves with our good works, we're saying in effect, Jesus, you are not necessary here. And that is the offense to Christ. That is the problem in his argument. He is saying the way that you believe in me, the way that you're living your life is by effect saying you don't need me. And that is the fundamental characteristic of unbelief. And to say you don't need me is to remain a slave to sin. Our good works done in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons give us a false assurance of salvation. You know what that feels like when you're doing good, when you're reading your Bible, when you're treating other people good. Doesn't it make you feel at the end of the day that you are finally okay with God? I'm on the right path. I'm doing good. Why? Because I'm doing good things. You've given into that system, that system of morality to think that your justification, your forgiveness, your acceptance, your adoption into the family of God ebbs and flows on the basis of your character. But that was never the promise to Abraham and it's never the promise to us. And Jesus is is touching on some very offensive things and he's saying this is all that matters to you is being good. That's the great sin of the Jews. And it's here that Jesus brings the argument to its boiling point. I mean, this is where he really offends them. He makes the point clear in no uncertain terms that to trust in him for spiritual freedom is absolutely the only way possible. Spiritual freedom cannot be found through their status, cannot be found through their system of morality. It can only be found through a savior who presents himself as the solution. Spiritual freedom is only found through a savior. Verse 52, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Then you say, what are you talking about? Abraham died. The prophets died. And you're saying, we're not going to die if we believe in you? You see, death, as Jesus is using it, he doesn't mean physical death. He doesn't mean the the cessation of the, of the, the beating heart. Death, in this sense, is is eternal separation from God. Spiritual death is this spiritual expulsion from the presence of God, from the love of God, and from relationship of God forever. This was the great curse of sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. He said to them, he said, If you disobey me, you will surely die. And they disobeyed, but they kept living. To an old age, in fact. They would eventually physically die, and that was part of the curse, but in that moment of sin, their status as ones who were spiritually alive changed, and they became spiritually dead, alienated from God. And as a demonstration and physical, tangible way of showing that, he kicked them out of the, he expelled them from the garden, just as he expelled them from relationship with him. And Jesus is saying the only way to find your way back home, the only way to find yourself truly spiritually free and to possess the presence of the love of God is to believe in me 
and to have my word take deep root in your heart to the point where you are fully dependent upon me. And then they ask the question that you and I would ask as well, and that is completely reasonable. They stare at him and they look at him in the face and they say, who do you think you are? That's fair. <laughs> That's a fair question. Imagine that. You go to work tomorrow. You go to school. Your, your teacher, professor, your, your boss calls a team meeting and says, everybody together, get the whole team together. And he says, your, your eternal destiny will depend upon your association with me from here on out. We cannot say in that moment, you know, he makes some good points. I respect him and I like him. He's a good teacher, a good leader. I want to be more like him. This is, imagine that. Imagine if I said that your eternal destiny will depend. I don't even want to say it. It just feels weird, right? Your eternal destiny depends. Jesus is saying your eternal de destiny depends on your association with me. And they say, who do you think you are? And he says to them, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's really weird. Why didn't he say before Abraham was, I was? He says, I'm really old. He says, you're not 50 years old. He says, no, before Abraham was, I was. I've, I've been using those essential oils. I've been clearing my skin up. He's like, I'm doing really good, really healthy. Eating my acai berries. No, he says, before Abraham was, I am. This is not even the right tense. What is he saying here? As Jesus is identifying himself with the words, I am, he is identifying himself with the very name and nature of God himself. We've talked about this before, but if this is your first time hearing it, this is so important. Jesus is using the name of God that his people would know. There's a reason why immediately when he said, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to kill him. They didn't grab a rope to hang him. They didn't pull out a sword to stab him because they knew that the punishment, the capital punishment for claiming to be God was death by stoning. And they pick up stones because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, the reason why your eternity depends on me is because I am God Almighty. And Jesus does not want them to be on the fence about it at all. You know, a Christ, the Christian apologetic and writer C.S. Lewis, who died more than 60 years ago now, he saw that there were three legitimate responses to the words that Jesus speaks here. The liar, the lunatic, and the Lord. That's the test. He is either a liar, he is out of his mind, or he is who he says he is. And the Jews said, you are lying. And he kept pressing in. And he says, now we know you're crazy. And Jesus doesn't want us to be on the fence about it. What options do we have when Jesus says something like this? We cannot say, I really like Jesus. I really like what he taught, but I'm not really sure. He never gives us the freedom to be on the fence about who he is. He doesn't want you to be on the fence about who he is either. We can crown him king of our life or we could kill him. Those are the two options. You must make him the very center of your life or you must reject him entirely. You see, the day that we become spiritually free 
is not the day of our independence where we get to do whatever we want. The day we become spiritually free is the day of our dependence, where we claim our dependency on God, where we relinquish the, uh, the claim over our own life and our own will and doing things our own way and saying, Jesus, you now reign over my life. You reign over my heart. And if there's ever a time where we say, well, who is he to claim such ownership over my life? He is God Almighty, the creator of the universe. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He claims it here. He says the promise to Abraham is that through the offspring of Abraham, through the family of Abraham will come an offspring that will reverse the curse, that will set the slaves free. He wasn't talking about physical, economic, political bondage. He was talking about a spiritual bondage to sin that none of us can escape on our own. And the apostle Paul sees it and he writes about it and he tells us the person that God was talking about when he promised that Abraham would have a family member that would rescue us. He was talking about Jesus. We can trace Jesus's lineage all the way back to Abraham. An association with God is not through some royal bloodline and biology. It is through a faith line that we become Abraham's children. We become the, we have the privilege and the inheritance of all that God promised to Abraham, blessing, salvation, eternal life, a, a, a people, a nation, and a God who is with us forever. That is obtained through faith in believing Jesus' word and it taking deep root in our heart and abiding in us forever. Jesus gets the point of cross and everyone who has ever had an encounter with Jesus has responded to him in one of two ways. They pick up stones to kill him or they throw their lives at his feet and worship him. Those are the two responses that we get to have. We cannot be indifferent when we hear what he actually says. We cannot be indifferent. We have people here who are Christians and been Christians for generations. And, and over time, it's, it becomes very easy for us to, to slip into these, um, these patterns of relying on, a, on our status. Well, I've been doing this forever. God's okay with me. I've been doing this forever. We're all right. We have a good agreement. Or we, we, we get into this system of morality. Well, I'm not the guy I used to be. I'm not the girl I used to be. I've changed a lot in my life. And we have forgotten that our privilege and position with Jesus is not dependent on that record of character, but it's dependent on his sacrificial death in our place, his triumphant resurrection, the indwelling Holy Spirit, him calling us into relationship with him, and then he says, stay put. What does that mean? To abide in his word. That word abide, it just means, now stay put. As if you first believe, continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to make me the, the, the center of your life. He's number one or he's nothing at all. Where will you put him? Where will you make him in your life? He is inviting you into relationship that is described as nothing less than a bond of love and peace. Receive him 
and abide in Him. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.